The Crimopedia podcast is a completely independent show that explores content of a potentially violent and disturbing nature. Please use your listening discretion. Receiving an acceptance letter to university, graduate school, medical school, or to study abroad is comparable to Willy Wonka's golden ticket. It's an assured pathway to achieving the goal that you had set out for yourself. It usually comes after years of hard work and dedication, as well as some discipline. For Adele Komorowski, it was the same. She had received an acceptance letter to start a Master's of Arts degree at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, and was thrilled to undertake the opportunity of pursuing higher education. But 50 years ago today, on May 15th of 1973, her brother, Peter Komorowski, received a knock at his family's front door around 4 a.m. On the other side were Hamilton police, informing him that his ambitious firecracker of a sister had been murdered in the very place that she found her passion and hope for the future, at school. With the 50th anniversary of Adele Komarowski's death, I thought it was only appropriate to revisit a case that, frankly, not many of us know about, but marks a dark era in McMaster University's history, as Adele was the first person to be murdered on their campus, and it was a murder that technically, to this day, remains unsolved. With that, let's jump right in. Adele Komarowski was born in Germany, but certainly didn't stay there. Her family would move to Australia and finally settle in Canada by the time Adele was only four years old. The Komarowski family found themselves in the Cooksville area of Mississauga, and despite living there essentially her entire life, Adele's family never let her forget about her European heritage. Her father, Michael, who, more recently relative to the timeline of this case, passed away in 2010, made sure to teach Adele English but also exposed her to his Russian speech and ensured she engaged with her mother while speaking German. Adele's grandparents, who also lived in their Mississauga home, spoke Polish, and it was no surprise that being raised in a melting pot of language and culture, Adele easily picked up all of these languages. Adele would grow up to be quote-unquote dynamic, as I saw many articles describe her. To me, she was a powerhouse of a young woman and was very well-liked amongst the people she knew. Adele would grow up to be tall with stunning dark hair and dark eyes, and she was well-known to be unafraid of whatever challenges lie ahead of her. She was strong, but her tough exterior didn't deter her from exposing a soft side and really only shined through when her younger brother, Peter, was born in 1956, as she felt it necessary to take on a protective role over him. This was especially true when their parents' marriage would eventually start to fall apart. Adele got her determined and fortified nature presumably from her dad, who, in addition to making sure she was well-versed in language, also made sure to instill in the children from a very young age that it was critical that they work hard to make sure they had a better life than he did and Adele took that very seriously. Unsurprisingly, Adele Komarowski enrolled in McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario in their languages program, studying German. And in 1972, she began working towards her master's degree in German language and literature in a small department of only about 10 graduate students. Especially while she was at McMaster, her peers and colleagues remarked about how Adele had a presence that many were drawn to, given her unique nature of being both outgoing but reserved, mysterious and enthralling. 
Aside from being popular and making friends easily, Adele was also quite successful in her academics. She won a scholarship to study abroad in Germany for a year during her education, and was thrilled about this opportunity. However, at this time, she was living with her boyfriend, Walter Kubrin, who was somewhat understandably worried that the distance would ruin their relationship. Adele was quite an independent woman, after all. Walter and Adele met while working at the same summer job, I'm not sure where, but she had eventually convinced him to go back to school, and the two lived along Main Street West together, only a short distance from McMaster's campus. Walter Kubrin was also born in Germany, but his parents were Ukrainian, and similarly to Adele, they wanted their son to work hard for a better life than they had, as they were forced to work in munitions factories after seeking refuge. So after Walter settled in as a student and found some stability with Adele, he was worried that Adele leaving would presumably be too much of a change and that she might find someone else. And unfortunately, she did. When Adele returned to Canada after her year abroad, she was engaged to a German naval lieutenant. This is a good time for me to interject into the story and tell you that finding sources on this case has been incredibly difficult given its age and apparent lack of notoriety. This highlights why it's important to report on lesser-known cases, but the point I want to make is that I don't even know her fiancé's name, I couldn't find it anywhere. In fact, there are many details in this case that are blank for me, which contributes to the mystery of what happened to Adele, but let's continue. At the university, in Adele's office in the Arts 2 building, presumably renamed to something else as there are no buildings currently named such, she had a photo of her fiancé on her desk and didn't shy away from discussing her upcoming wedding in July of 1973. A wedding that was planned seemingly without a second thought of Walter Kubrin, at least from my reading. But unfortunately, Adele would never make it to the altar. With her 27th birthday on the horizon, on May 15th of 1973, Adele Komaransky met with a girlfriend for coffee, likely at least partially preoccupied with upcoming wedding plans. While she was there, at a coffee shop I'm not sure the name of, a classmate of hers named Alfred Petzold reportedly stopped at the table to say hi. Adele was likely unnerved by his presence, as it's reported that he and Adele briefly dated, despite their age difference of just over 10 years given he was 38 at the time, but worse was that the couple would argue quite a bit during their short stint together. Alfred was reportedly chauvinistic, quote-unquote high and mighty, and he was disdainful of the rising hippie culture of the 70s. Alfred had a formal manner about him. One report I read by the Hamilton Spectator said that he insisted on wearing a suit jacket and tie everywhere he went, and even back in the 70s, this was super outdated attire for casual errands, and he was one of the only people in the school who did it. It's clear from my reading that Alfred thought very high of himself, and I'm sure Adele was just frustrated and annoyed to see him that day. Alfred Petzold also emigrated from Germany, but he moved around quite a bit and even spent some time in the Canadian Navy before finding himself in Hamilton, Ontario at McMaster University, and then suddenly he's at a table with Adele Komaransky and her friend, uninvited. According to some reports I read, the conversation they had that day was him telling Adele that he had a job interview to teach high school in Guelph, which is only about 45 minutes now from Hamilton. It's unclear if the job interview he was talking about was scheduled for later that day or the next, but regardless, from my reading it seems that the conversation was brief and Adele was thankful for that. However, it's important not to forget about Alfred, because he'll become a critical player in this story before long. 
Later in the afternoon on May 15th, after what was already a long day working at the university, Adele was speaking with another classmate, Mike Haman. Mike stayed in the Brandon Hall residence, near the north end of the campus where there were trails into a botanical gardens area called Coots Paradise. Mike knew that Adele was shaping up to have not only a long afternoon but a long evening working, and so he offered his room to her if she was going to keep up the pace of work she was already at for the night. Adele had taken Mike up on this offer before, so presumably she was thankful for his graciousness and went about her day, knowing she'd have a place close by to crash at the end of the night, only about a seven-minute walk from her office. Anticipating only a short walk home, that night, she stayed in her office on campus and worked until approximately 11pm. Around that time, she picked up her bag and umbrella as it had been raining and left the building, headed for Brandon Hall. It was a walk that shouldn't have taken Adele very long, but our story jumps to approximately an hour later, around midnight, when two Hamilton police detectives found themselves standing over Adele Komoransky's dead body, lying face up on a slope just off of a trail near Brandon Hall, only about 90 meters, or 300 feet, away from the front entrance. Hamilton police received a call after campus police made the discovery almost a full half hour before they did. So by that time, although Hamilton police knew they were looking at a homicide, they never got a good look at the scene as they were already playing catch-up. However, there were certain details that they could make out, and this is what they found when they discovered Adele's dead body. They could tell that Adele had been dragged along the trail, likely because there were streaks on the ground that were made more obvious by the mud given it was raining, but that's just a guess on my part. They had noted that Adele also had a hemp rope wrapped around her neck three times and also around her wrists, which were pinned behind her head. In one CBC article I read by Wayne McPhail, the knots on the ropes were described as carefully knotted. Adele also had a yellow J-cloth stuffed into her mouth, which if you don't know, a J-cloth is a generic type of multi-purpose cleaning cloth. Adele's top was missing and her pants were positioned below her hips. In addition, police also found a woman's bra nearby, but determined it was not her size and therefore unlikely belonging to her. Interestingly, it was found later, upon post-mortem examination, that Adele had not actually been sexually assaulted, so it's possible that her clothes could have ended up the way they did from being dragged, or possibly even from positioning, by the killer attempting to throw off police, despite the initial thoughts being sexual assault. Police quickly determined that whoever did this to Adele, given her proximity to the entrance of Brandon Hall and likely the short duration of her venture outside in general, they must have acted quickly. So just as quickly, especially since they were already behind, approximately 40 Hamilton police officers with canine units began canvassing the area for clues and talking to witnesses. Although from my reading, it didn't seem like much came from searching the area beyond what I already discussed, there were some pretty interesting witness statements made. One witness who lived on the sixth floor of Brandon Hall had told police that she had heard a young woman's voice yell, leave me alone, around 11.15pm. When the witness went over to her window to see what had happened, she saw a man, at least over six feet tall, speaking with a woman by the building. Then, the witness said she saw the man leading the woman out of view and toward the wooded area where Adele was found. Meanwhile, the woman was yelling, please let me go, please don't hurt me. Despite being damning, the witness reported yelling out her window, leave her alone, and really nothing else as far as my reading goes. 
I don't even know if she was the one to call campus police, but I'd like to assume so after seeing what she saw. Police were pretty confident that the woman the witness saw was Adele, and the man she saw was her killer. Around 3 a.m. the same morning, Mike Haman, the friend who offered his residence room up to Adele that evening, was brought in to identify Adele's body. Shortly after, police would undertake the very large task of identifying everyone who knew Adele and interviewing them. One friend who was interviewed two days later, although the details are fuzzy, reportedly said they saw Adele arguing with a man shortly before her murder, saying, no I won't, and although the rest of the argument and this interview is a mystery to me, it seems that many news outlets have taken this argument to be with Adele and a potential male suitor who was interested in her, but she wasn't. Further, some have speculated that the person arguing with Adele was Alfred Petzold, but personally I'm unsure, but we'll come back to Alfred soon. Hamilton police had an initial list of suspects that included the usual ones, such as her fiancé, who was eliminated quickly as he was in Germany at the time of her death. Her father, Michael Komaransky, was also on the suspect list, but he was ruled out after questioning for a quote-unquote lacking opportunity. There was also an unnamed undergraduate student on the list, and he's unnamed at least as far as my reading goes. This student was reportedly in love with Adele while she was either teaching or acting as a teaching assistant for a class. This student had quote-unquote psychological issues and was not quote-unquote sexually normal, according to the Hamilton Spectator, but eventually it was determined that he also lacked opportunity. Police also suspected a professor, Robert Van Dusen, who was a 44-year-old single man with a meek demeanor and was reportedly infatuated with Adele, to the point where everyone knew about it. He was quiet and shy, and he was nicknamed Whispering Bob by other students, which seems counterintuitive for someone who served in the U.S. Army and was involved in counterintelligence operations between 1951 and 1954. Although he would eventually be ruled out, as we'll discuss later, it was his infatuation with Adele and unassuming demeanor that I think tipped a few people off into thinking he was suspicious. Unfortunately, however, like most of the suspects on this list by now, Robert Van Dusen died in 2007 and was buried in New York City. There was also Alfred Petzold, who roughly fit the physical description of the suspect, and he had claimed to be at home at the time of Adele's murder, but nobody could corroborate this for him. And although this does ring suspicious, Initially, police wanted to hone in on Walter Kubrin, Adele's ex-boyfriend, while also simultaneously diving into Alfred. Walter Kubrin also roughly fit the physical description of Adele's attacker according to the witness statement of the girl on the sixth floor of Brandon Hall. And keep in mind, he was Adele's serious live-in boyfriend before she left to Germany and got engaged to someone else. She had let his worst fears about their relationship become realized, so it makes sense that he would hold anger against Adele and thus would be a suspect in the murder. Upon finding out that police were interested in speaking with him, Walter willingly turned himself in to Hamilton police and volunteered for an interview. Whether or not he held resentment against Adele, he was visibly shaken by the ordeal, even more so when detectives felt that he wasn't cooperating because he didn't have the kinds of information they needed. It's reported that they pulled the classic hot and cold, good cop, bad cop move in the interview, turning it into an interrogation, and even threatening to show pictures of Adele in the morgue to Walter if he didn't confess. Evidently, he didn't end up confessing, and they did end up showing him pictures of Adele, 
but he was adamant about his lack of involvement. According to him, he didn't do it and he didn't know who did either. Alfred Petzold, on the other hand, was also told that police wanted to speak with him. The wording I saw reported was that he knew police would quote-unquote come for him, and they did. Hamilton police were granted a search of Alfred's home on Emerson Street, also close to the university, but I'm not sure on what grounds. I do know that upon searching, they had asked him to hand over the clothes he was wearing on the night of the murder, and that Alfred offered to take a polygraph test. However, when the time came to administer the test, Alfred Petzold had lawyered up, and his counsel advised him not to take it. With the advent of Alfred no longer cooperating, police elected to interview some of his inner circle and former associates, including his former supervisor with the Canadian military. This supervisor reported to police that although Alfred Petzold was a quote-unquote solid guy, he had a bit of a superiority complex, a character trait that was certainly not lost on Adele either. Within days of Adele's murder, days that the Hamilton Spectator rightfully reports as precious ones passing by, Clive Paul with the Hamilton Police became the lead detective on the case. He was initially interested in pursuing the professor angle, Robert Van Dusen, and he believed that Robert was their strongest suspect. It was reported through the grapevine that Robert's infatuation had led him to stalking Adele to whatever extent, and she had once rejected him despite seeing him a few times socially. This back and forth between Adele and Robert fueled more rumors in the grapevine that she was leading him on, which was possible motive. Further, a few reports stated that Adele had been driving his car around, using it casually, which seems like an incomplete statement from my reading, but if it's true, offers some merit to him being let on. When Hamilton police searched his apartment, they found a piece of rope in a duffel bag with a U.S. Army emblem on it but it turned out to be quite different from the one used on Adele. Robert Van Dusen would eventually be subject to a full interrogation by Detective Jim Willis with the Hamilton police, but when it was over, Detective Willis didn't seem to think he was a good suspect anymore, but some people refused to scratch him off the list. I'm not entirely sure what the grounds were for him being ruled out of the investigation, but I am equally unsure as to why so many people believe he is such a strong suspect. As you'll come to learn, there were many potential suitors who were interested in Adele, and if we took them all as suspicious, the suspect list would be very, very long. I'm sure there are other reasons that people suspect Robert Van Dusen, but he has passed away now, and there's nothing else we can gather from investigating him. From my own reading, there's not much else to go on that already exists. Nearing the end of that summer, on August 14th, Detective Clive Paul received some information from police across the border in New York State that a new suspect may fit the bill of Adele's murder. New York State Police had recently apprehended a serial rapist and spree killer by the name of Robert Garrow, who was being held in custody in Hamilton County, New York. During his 18-day killing spree throughout the year of 1973, he had killed 16-year-old Alicia Huck, 23-year-old Daniel Porter, 20-year-old Susan Petz, and 18-year-old Philip Domolowski. Robert Garrow was caught after escapees of his capture contacted police which started a 12-day-long manhunt, ending with Robert Garrow being cornered in a small wooded area and shot in the arm, foot, and back. Garrow would eventually be tried and sentenced to 25 years to life in prison for his crimes. 
In his early life, Garrow had a tough childhood in New York being raised by poor French-Canadian parents who were farmers for most of his life. The detail of him being originally Canadian and this crime occurring across the border in Canada was one not lost on police. Garrow's parents were often heavy-handed with their discipline, even using bricks on some occasions, and there were few incidences where police were called to break up particularly violent fights between him and his father. On one occasion, Robert would end up going to work at a prison farm at age 15 after a brutal fight with his dad. Throughout his life, Robert would report an extensive history of paraphilias and sexual dysfunction. One report I read even stated he eventually confessed to acts of bestiality with the farm animals he was raised around. Robert's degeneracy continued into his adulthood, as he struggled to hold down a job since, when he was employed, he was often caught stealing and breaking the law. He even spent time in the United States Air Force, but was quickly court-martialed after being caught stealing money from a senior officer. Eventually, Robert would spend most of his time in and out of jail as his spree of sexual violence began, initially starting with an arrest in 1961 for sexual violence that came with a seven-year prison sentence. The more Hamilton police began to learn about Garrow, the more they were intrigued, especially when they learned that, at the time of Adele's death, he was living in Syracuse, New York, which is only about four hours away from Hamilton where the murder happened. According to the New York State Police, Robert's modus operandi was to quote-unquote accost his victim, taking them into wooded and secluded areas to sexually abuse them, sometimes while tied up, sometimes while not. Some of Robert's victims were released, such as the ones that would spark the manhunt for him eventually, but others were not. The New York State Police informed Clive Paul of the Hamilton Police that they found a map in Garrow's Volkswagen with notes made beside cities in the general Southern Ontario and New York region. The city of Hamilton, Ontario, where McMaster University was and so was Adele, was on the map in full view, and beside it, there was a question mark made in pencil. Interestingly, and a detail I haven't mentioned yet, was that one of the witness statements on the night of Adele's murder made to police was that someone saw a Volkswagen speeding away with its lights off about an hour after what would have been Adele's murder. Further, New York State Police noted that during interviews, Robert Garrow implied that he had crossed the border from New York into Ontario before, but never explicitly said so. He would even go on to deny that the map found in his Volkswagen was even his, and he even argued that police planted it, which made him seem even more suspicious. Even further, it would eventually come out that the rope used to tie Adele by the neck and wrists had traces of cow and horse hair in it, which, to police, pointed directly at Robert Garrow given his background in farming. Police even began to speculate that the bra found at the scene of Adele's murder, the one that was determined not to belong to her, could have actually been a trophy from another crime committed by Robert Garrow that was accidentally left behind during the chaos of the attack on Adele. Unfortunately, however, although New York State Police had no issue letting Hamilton police come in to interview Garrow, and they were certainly interested in doing so given all the parallels between the evidence in Adele's case and his other crimes, his lawyer shut it down quickly and Hamilton police never got the chance. With the Robert Garrow lead stunted, detectives Clive Paul and Jim Willis flew out to Halifax in the province of Nova Scotia to take a second look at Walter Kubrin. If you recall, Walter Kubrin is Adele's ex-boyfriend, and since her murder, he had married someone else and moved out to the east coast of Canada to attend graduate studies. 
Detectives wanted to reinvestigate him because they thought that his previous experience as a sailor, and consequently an expert knot tyer, could implicate him in the crime somehow. In addition, some believed that he left Ontario to escape police, so they wanted to make sure that he knew if he was guilty, they would come get him. When the detectives arrived in Halifax, they were surprised by the dramatic change in Walter Kubrin's appearance. He had grown a full beard by this point, which was another odd thing to note, as some people thought it could have been intentional to avoid detection. However, after interrogating Walter Kubrin for an additional four hours, the detectives no longer thought it was possible for him to have committed the crime. They thought that Walter had a total lack of opportunity, and they also found out that his move to Halifax wasn't suspicious or indicative of evasion at all. He had applied to study there an entire month before Adele's murder, likely just trying to move on with his life after she got engaged to someone else. At this point, the professor, Robert Van Dusen, was a bust, the investigation into Robert Garrow was stunted, Walter Kubrin lacked opportunity, and Alfred Petzold, the arrogant older classmate of Adele's, had permanently relocated to Germany a year after her murder. Taking a second look into Walter Kubrin had undoubtedly been the last lead that Hamilton police had to go off regarding the murder of Adele Komaransky, and consequently, the trail went absolutely cold. By the 1990s, Hamilton police were forced to withdraw the reward money offered for information in the case, and they felt as if they had exhausted all leads. The story of Adele Komaransky continued to haunt the original detectives as the years passed on. Knowing that the case was solvable by all means, there was physical evidence, witnesses, and plenty of people with motive, but for one reason or another, none of it could be pursued any further. Eventually, both of Adele's parents died with her mother falling into severe alcoholism and her notoriously rigid father being overcome with emotion every time he spoke about Adele. As the years passed by, he was constantly contacting police for updates that they simply didn't have, and they both died without ever knowing what happened to their daughter. Some hope was renewed in 2012, when Adele's younger brother, Peter Komaransky, was contacted by a journalist in New York named Jim Tracy. Jim had been doing research to write about Robert Garrow, and based upon his research, he thought Garrow could have been responsible for Adele's murder, similar to the thinking of the original detectives back in the 70s. Like them, Jim easily drew parallels between Garrow's other crimes and the circumstances of Adele's murder. However, when he approached Peter, Peter had no idea who Robert Garrow was and had never heard of him before. He had no idea that Robert Garrow had been investigated in connection with his sister's murder, and that police were unable to scratch him off the suspect list. When news about Robert Garrow and Jim Tracy's work had finally broke, quotes from Clive Paul were reported by Wayne McPhail for the CBC, and they substantiated that at least up until 2013, police did in fact believe Garrow could have been a viable suspect. According to Clive Paul in these articles, he even went as far to say that the case was solved for all intents and purposes, quote-unquote, it's the best suspect we've seen, the circumstances fit perfectly. Hamilton police decided to revisit this angle and see if using new technology and a fresh set of eyes, they could either disregard or substantiate the Robert Garrow theory some more. New Staff Sergeant Dave Olenek with the Hamilton Police ended up revisiting the scene on McMaster's campus in the woods to canvas it out and see if he could find anything new. 
He also sought some old boxes of evidence out of storage for re-examination. He wanted to have another comprehensive look at everything the Hamilton police had collected over the years. He would go on to reorganize everything they had, re-examining forensic evidence and completing a full report. Unfortunately, going back over the evidence already tested didn't really yield anything new. The rope tied around Adele by this point had been handled by so many people, even without gloves, back in the 70s, and had been subjected to various types of testing protocols that compromised its integrity. At this point, there was little that could be recovered from it, and little that could be done to re-examine any results from the past. For example, the rope had been tested back in 2002, but even then, there were insufficient DNA quantities. For all intents and purposes, the physical evidence was useless, if not already limited. Regardless of the struggles he faced when trying to re-examine old evidence, Sergeant Olenek's full report concluded in a hypothesis about what he thought happened. Firstly, he speculated that the scene of the crime was staged to resemble a sexual assault, possibly to add an element of randomness and confuse the investigators. This made people think that the person who attacked Adele was more than likely someone who knew her, because only someone who knew her would want police to think that it was someone who didn't. This theory aligns with the lack of actual sexual assault evidence found on Adele, and according to him, her clothes were positioned in a manner suggestive of it on purpose. To Sergeant Olenek, this is one of the many reasons why Garrow was quote-unquote highly unlikely to be the killer but there were several other reasons. Firstly, Robert Garrow was a spree killer and a serial rapist who admitted to all of his crimes once apprehended. But what, not this one? Secondly, if a serial offender's motive is at least partially sexual in nature, you would think there would be more evidence of at least an attempt on sexual assault. Thirdly, the eyewitness descriptions of the man Adele had encountered the night she was murdered did not align with the physical description of Robert Garrow. The man seen with Adele that night by the witness was tall and domineering. Robert Garrow was under six feet, he was bald, and often to compensate for his baldness he wore a hat. The attacker seen was not wearing a hat and he wasn't bald either, and he was very much over six feet. Further, Garrow's violent crimes often involved the use of a knife, which was not the case for Adele. And although a Volkswagen had been seen speeding away from the scene, and Garrow had a Volkswagen, so did a lot of people back in the 1970s, and it didn't help that the one scene was reportedly a darkish green color according to a witness. Robert Garrow's was orange. Regarding the map in his car, with the question mark written beside Hamilton, Ontario, Staff Sergeant Olenek seems to think it was simply a point of confusion. According to him, he didn't get the impression that Garrow was very… smart, and given he had previously been in trial in Hamilton County, New York, it could have been a coincidence or a case of confusion that the wrong Hamilton was indicated on the map. It's possible that Robert Garrow couldn't tell the difference between Hamilton, New York and Hamilton, Ontario. Lastly, and most damning in my opinion, was that Robert Garrow was scheduled to work at his job in a Syracuse bakery on the night of Adele's murder. If he had worked the night shift, he would have had no opportunity to murder Adele. If he had worked the day shift, he would have had to drive four hours to Hamilton and happen to spot her. It makes more sense that the attack was targeted, and whoever murdered Adele knew where she was and either knew where she was headed or had been watching her the entire time. 
The unfortunate part of Garrow as a suspect was that, similar to how police could never interview him to investigate due to being blocked by his attorney, they could never properly rule him out as a suspect because he had died. After his original arrest in 1973, where he was shot three times, he did recover but claimed to be suffering from paralysis, resulting in him requesting countless transfers to special holding units. In particular, he was interested in a minimum security unit in the Fishgill Correctional Facility, which itself was only a medium security facility. Upon successfully being transferred there in 1978, he took advantage of the low security and managed to coerce a family member to smuggle in a 32 caliber weapon and escape. Robert Garrow scaled a fence, evidently not suffering from paralysis after all, and was eventually found and killed by another officer. Sergeant Olena concluded that, given this, Garrow could never be completely eliminated from the investigation now that he was dead, but still, it was highly unlikely that he was the one who murdered Adele. While researching this case and Garrow's involvement, I stumbled upon a Reddit thread and some interesting comments from a user named Tapier Trouble. The user said this, quote, There are a couple things that make me wonder about Garrow as a suspect. It seems odd to me that he would suddenly go and start exploring the Hamilton area. I might be wrong on this, but based on what I read about him earlier, he didn't seem to sort of just go off at random. Even if his family might have been Canadian originally, he'd more likely have connections to the eastern side of Lake Ontario, not the west. More French Canadians there. Further, the Reddit user said this, quote, I grew up in Hamilton and went to McMaster. It was a running joke about it being a bit difficult to get into the campus, at least back then. The school didn't have a big broad avenue leading to it from the main highway like some other universities. Friends who had jobs delivering pizzas to the area where Adele was living would complain about this. If someone living in New York who wasn't used to the area had wanted to go there, it would have taken some planning and effort." End quote. Honestly, I couldn't have said it better myself, and given this and the conclusions from Staff Sergeant Olenek's report, personally, I'm comfortable rejecting Robert Garrow's involvement. Another suspect emerged in more recent years, someone who was originally from Germany, matched the description of the murderer given by the witness, was historically a misogynist, had dated Adele, and had a confrontation with her reportedly a few days before her murder. This suspect, according to Sergeant Olenek's account, reportedly told a friend that he had walked the trails around McMaster on the night of Adele's murder, which could have possibly been a preemptive attempt to get in front of any witness statements of people who had seen him in the area the night of Adele's murder. Further, he had even told another friend that someone had stolen rope from his apartment. In a conversation with a professor in his department about Adele, this suspect kept referring to her as quote-unquote that girl, despite knowing her well, which was noted as oddly detached given their history. A year after Adele's murder, this suspect left Germany and never returned to Ontario, a move oddly reminiscent of Walter Kubrin's move to the East Coast, but one that had no justification. According to Staff Sergeant Olenek, quote, Adele was an independent woman who had no problem confronting the men in her life. She was known to be assertive, and this, in 1973, could easily have been seen to trigger a disproportionate response from a jealous male. 
Without revealing who his ideal suspect was, Staff Sergeant Olenek asked Hamilton Police Detective Andrew Coughlin to independently review the case documents just as he had, and ultimately, Detective Coughlin pointed to the same suspect. Sergeant Olenek said that his determination was speculative, as this long after the murder and with the suspect in a different country, that's really all it could be, but he decided to present his findings to Adele's brother Peter anyways. At this point, Peter had married and had two children of his own. He had relocated to California before returning to Toronto and had been employed as an engineer. He had moved on with his life, but could never fill the place in his heart where Adele, his sister, was supposed to be. Peter and his wife Colleen sat down with both Olenek and Coughlin reviewing the report and unanimously concluded that their most likely suspect was Alfred Petzold. Peter said that he felt relieved after reviewing everything himself and that this theory made sense. He had certainly hoped it wasn't Walter Kubrin given the two of them had developed a friendship, even going go-karting and camping together. But even though all three were certain that the detectives were right, there was nothing anyone could do about it as Alfred, like many of the other suspects, had died at the age of 70 while living in Germany. Even further, if his DNA was found on any of the materials found at the scene that day, it could never be matched to anything, as they never had a chance to even get DNA from him, so there was nothing on file. Even worse was that Alfred Petzold had no family to test. There were no records of him ever marrying or having children, and he has no known relatives, so they could never even make an indirect DNA match. In addition, the clothes they collected from his apartment back in 1973 during that initial search that he was reportedly wearing on the night Adele was murdered had either been returned or destroyed at this point. However, regardless of all of that, the theory still made sense. With his history with Adele, he would have had motive, he certainly had opportunity, he had a shaky alibi, he was a known womanizer, and he had fled shortly after her death. Petzold slipped from the focus of police in pursuit of Walter Kubrin and Robert Garrow, and by the time they had circled back, he was long gone, but they were confident that it was him. Given this determination, Again, although it can only ever be speculative, Hamilton police considered the case of Adele Komaransky effectively closed, although not formally. Unfortunately, it looks like that's the best we're going to get, as Alfred Petzold, if he is the guilty party, will never face justice. We will never have the opportunity to know what he knows about the murder of Adele, and conversely, he will never have the opportunity to defend himself on trial. Regardless, Adele's family was comfortable with the determination made, and although she'll never be forgotten to them, some closure is better than none, and they can certainly move on. There is a short film about this case directed by Joe DiBendetto titled Adele. Unfortunately, it's the only real recent media that's come out about the tragic murder of Adele, which again is why it's so important to report on lesser known cases, but I'll have it linked on my website if you'd like to give it a watch. It's certainly interesting and helps to illustrate what kind of person she was, and what she was up against with the men in her life. If there's any message to offer you after listening to the tragic case of Adele Komaransky, it's the same one that I've echoed in the last few episodes I've published. Leave women alone. All of the detectives in the Hamilton Police Department agreed that Adele's confidence, persistence, achievement, bashfulness, determination, unrelenting beauty, and total lack of fear of any obstacles in her way 
was what did her in. In other words, it was total misogyny. A handful of men could not stand to see a woman be so successful but also beautiful and not interested in them. Like many women that I've talked about on this podcast, this story seems to play out over and over again. And honestly, it's just getting old. It, it's been old. It got old a long time ago. Parents, teach your young boys to be better. You never know which one of them is going to end up doing what Alfred Petzold allegedly did to Adele Komaransky. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Crimopedia podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed making it for you. And I hope you enjoyed hearing about a lesser known case. It's one that's somewhat local to me, but even I hadn't heard about it until relatively recently. I like these ones a lot because they present a unique challenge. Finding sources and information about them is very difficult, let alone substantiating the sources that are already limited. But talking about lesser known cases is exactly why I started this show. Of course, the notorious ones are interesting to everybody, and I'm guilty of that myself. But it's the people, the real people, who are victims that don't get talked about ever. That's who I'm really passionate about. So, if you have any other cases that are similar to this one that you think needs some more attention, please do let me know. You can let me know on my website at crimopediapod.ca. There, I've got a case suggestion forum that you can fill out, or you can message me on Instagram at crimopediapod. As well, if you'd like to view any of the source material I did use for this episode, you can find it on my website at crimopediapod.ca as well. Thank you so much, everyone. Stay safe, leave women alone, and I will talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm.